This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Okay, first up, if kids are listening, there's some potty talk in this show, as in some mildly explicit language. And this warning applies to the first and second episodes of the Pete Vordenberg experience from Nordic Nation. So here's the scene where this past July, when I sat down with Pete Vordenberg, who is first and foremost a dad, a husband, and down on the list of what he'd like to advertise, two-time Olympian, former U.S. ski team head coach, and book author. So it's a Sunday night. Is that right? Yeah. This is, this is really heaven, man. There's people out here with babies. There's people out here with beers, kids, dogs. It's sunny. That's a newborn right there, right there. Cute. That's, don't get wound up with your, with your baby and your stuff. Come, look, there's another one. There's a breastfeeding baby. That's what I'm talking about. Why are you hanging out in your house? Come out here and bring your babies and your kids and do this. Well, not everybody can do it, but if you can do it, do that. Um, Oh, cornhole. He missed. So close. Anyhow, we are at a Ben Brewery, uh, kind of cliche, I know. The brewery is called Crux Fermentation Project, and if you end up in town, it's trendy but good. Well, we're halfway through our first fermented project. But we are not halfway through the Vordenberg bio. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Boulder, same house that my mom grew up in. I throw that in there because I think that's just an interesting and kind of unique thing for America at least. You know, it's not common, I think, to grow up in the same house as your parents did. So I grew up in Boulder, was one of the first like five or six members of something called Lert Nordic, which is the Lake Eldora racing team. And that, that really took whoever I could have been and started to shape it into what I became, who I am, and what I have done so far. Okay, it's coming back to me. So Pete wrote a book called Mom- Momentum's the short title. What's the full title? <laughs> Momentum Chasing the Olympic Dream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, come on. Yes, that's well, the title. But you did fulfill that dream. Well, no. The dream was to win at the Olympics. Yeah. Well, that was the dream, and I did not succeed. I did not. Well, that's being hard. It's been a while since I've read the book, so I forget the premise. It's been a while since I wrote the book. (laughs) How long? Well, I wrote it in college. It was my college thesis. So I wrote it uh, as a thesis, and then when I graduated from college, I I decided, uh, actually a few years after I graduated from college, I decided I should just send it out and see if anybody wanted to publish it. And I don't know what he's doing now, but this guy, Jeff Potter, he ran a um, publishing company called Out Your Back Door. And he, he was the first one that said he wanted to publish it. And I, and I said, yeah, go, go for it. Where was he based? I think Michigan, okay. somewhere in the Midwest. And he was a cool dude. Uh, he was cooler than I uh, realized then. And I, and I, and I um, appreciate what he was trying to do now more than I did then because he was probably a little bit more in my shoes at the at the time you know he was a guy with kids and he he saw the sport through different a different lens than I did when I wrote that book and when I was trying to publish that book so 
Okay, so it is coming back to me. So I remember seeing maybe in the book, and I have not, I've read the book, had a copy, can't find the copy, I assure you. You might have loaned it out. Everybody loans them out. Maybe. Everybody loans it out. At a, there was a time in my life when I was wishing they were not getting loaned out and uh, they were getting purchased, uh, you know, rather than loaned. But now, pass it around. Who cares? Pass it off. But I remember sort of a blue navy cover with this, with you on the cover. <laughs> yeah. Right? With the word momentum. I'm kind of, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, when people say, oh, you wrote a book, and then they ask, what's it about? And then I got to say, well, it's about me. And that's an awkward moment for me. That's an awkward sentence every time I say it. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It seems, it is, doesn't seem, it is. It's a self-centered uh, thing. But... It is what it is. I'm still proud of it to this day. And, and so, yeah, there it is. So one of the things, I do remember a scene, and it might not be accurate. I remember there being scenes like your parents toured a lot. And it's not, if I recall this, and howling wind and being dragged somewhere. Well, they didn't tour in the way that we think of touring. You know, they don't. They weren't like skinning to ski down stuff. It was touring. It was like really the origin of cross-country skiing. You know, they were just skiing through the woods to a... We were skiing to the Brainerd Lake cabin. Brainerd... Wait, Brainerd... Yeah, Brainerd Lake. I, I don't remember who ran it. But uh, yeah, so we'd ski up there. And I was a young kid and I just was not into it. It was them, my parents, who I have nothing but good things to say about honestly like for real and um and my and our dogs and i just it wasn't that fun i didn't no, like it no siblings no no siblings and we we i very rarely do we have like a friend of mine to go with and that's the kind of the key now i realize that but uh you know if you have a friend your age the kids all of a sudden they're super motivated they just want to go and go and they're having fun with their own uh age person so anyway i did not love it what clicked eventually? I mean, this is going to be a recurring theme, and that is uh, developing a community. And I wouldn't have called it that then, but um, to keep that theme going, I'll call it a community now. Basically, as a kid, it was having friends doing it with you, and that was the number one thing. I would never have done it. I would never have kept going if it wasn't just for the friends that I developed like instantaneously on the first night that we had a meeting for Lert Nordic. I don't know how my parents got me there because I did not want to be there. But all of a sudden I was there, there was other kids there, and boom, the next thing you know, I want to win at the Olympics and I'm doing this until I'm 40 years old. Okay, so let me back Okay, back. so Pete and I had an infinite amount of tangents during our conversation. At this point, after digressing into some fine detail of Pete's life, I asked him his age. He was clearly thinking his age when he first had the Olympic dream. Okay, so let me backtrack and just to get a quick sort of bullet point. Um, how old are you? Yeah, uh, I don't really remember. I'm going to say you're like 45. 
now. Oh, yeah, now. yeah, yeah. How old are you now? I was that. like, geez. I remember now. I okay, remember. good. <laughs> Come on, we're three, three quarters of the way for through this, and I can remember my own well, age. I thought maybe it was like maybe he has early onset something. I don't know. I'll make a note, quick note. Ask. How old? Are there other signs? There probably are. <laughs> there are. I don't think there's signs necessarily of dementia, but there's signs of something. Something is happening. I've noticed changes. Good changes. There's changes. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to label. I am 45. Oh, really? Yeah. I was just guessing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, 45, you were, how many times were you an Olympian? Uh, two times. Okay. But I, I, I lucked out a bit. So I started, I... I, uh, the first Olympics was 1992, and that was that was in France, and I just turned 20. I, I just turned 20 for that Olympics, and um, uh, the next this was this. So this is when they started to alternate. They used to be, Olymp you know, they'd have winter and summer the same year. So the, they alternated. So instead of like hanging off on Olympics, they added an extra one. So I went to 92. And um, that season prior to the Olympics was the best I've ever been in my life as a as a uh, racer. Even by '94, I had started to slow down, but I was still fast enough to make it to the Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway, which was '94. Only two years later, and um, I mean, humbly but honestly, that's as good as the Olympics will ever be. I think winter or summer, that was like a that was a small. Um, amazing, just you know, community Olympics, where where you could just see that it was the people there that were out, and of course I say that from the perspective of a cross country skier because it was a, the cross country ski Olympics. So, are, would you advocate for? And we're getting, uh, and I'll come back to the timeline here, but yeah. you would advocate for maybe. Single location or rotating locations? I don't know. How would you format? I don't have a. I don't have a well-informed opinion. I don't. I can't say. All I know is my experience. Well, I have. I have two kind of experiences that could add to this conversation. One was Lillehammer. It was a beautiful thing. The other was Salt Lake, where uh, my wife Barb raced, and I was a forerunner in Salt Lake. So I went from Olympian in '92. <laughs> <laughs> to forerunner in 2002. <laughs> so you can kind of see the trajectory. Can you call downward? Is that a trajectory or is that called something else? No, it's a downward trajectory. Okay, all right. There may be a more accurate term. Anyway, so I was a forerunner there. And, um, you know, Salt Lake is still using all those venues. So, uh, Soldier Hollow is still really well run. It's still really, it's a great part of the... Um, of uh, skiing for the country, but also just the community. People are out there everywhere. I was spent some time, I spend time there every year, but this winter especially, I talked to some people who had volunteered way back. And so that also is this like really life-changing, community-oriented thing. And um, it had, a. I think a lot of people are talking about how the Olympics may come back to Salt Lake, and there's probably really good reasons for it not to. But the, when I talked to a lot of the people who volunteered there and who worked there, I mean, they, it was a life-changing event in a positive way for those people. And um, they really enjoyed it. And they're still out in Soldier Hollow volunteering for races. So, Ten years later, 
in 2002, mm. what were you doing skiing? Besides Let's, for running. Well, I had, so I quit racing in 1998. I quit racing and started coaching at the University of New Mexico with Frederick Lonsted. Um, so from 98 to 2000, I coached down there. But while I was coaching, I was out there, I was the assistant coach, and Frederick is the head coach. By the way, I got to put a plug in for Frederick. He's a, he's a great dude and a really awesome coach that informed my own ideas about what coaching should be quite a bit. He's uh, really good. So anyway, um, he was way more into the part. Hold on, we got cops. I mean, what's a cop and Ben doing? Where are they? What? You'd be surprised, honestly. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like, yeah, 80,000 plus people, it's almost a real city. It's, it's almost real, so they got something to do. All right, okay. When our attention was back on the interview, we took up with how he became involved with the U.S. ski team as a coach. Okay, Chris Grover was a development coach with Miles Minson prior to 2002. I don't know exactly when he started, but I think it was around 98, about, about when I started... Um, at New Mexico. And he had been coaching in Sun Valley. No, he'd been, he'd coached all over. Chris Grover had coached at Stratton, Bend, um, Sun Valley. That might've been it. Then maybe with the US ski team with Miles Minson. So in my opinion, Miles Minson and Chris Grover turned cross country skiing around in the US by beginning this development program. There was two dudes that signed up for that program, Chris Freeman and Andrew Johnson. They started extremely small, two dudes, but they developed this kind of system that could actually develop, like it wasn't a path to nowhere. It wasn't like this, just this vacuum that a kid could disappear into. It was a program that helped develop skiers to become you know, top international racers. And those two dudes, those guys started to turn around, man. It was like, a, it was, it's like one of those, uh, what are those little boats that you pedal? I mean, those guys were in there pedaling that thing and turning it around because it wasn't going anywhere. And those guys got in there and they turned it and started heading in the right direction with that development program. And where were you? So that's when I was coaching in New Mexico and observing this. So while I was coaching in New Mexico, um, I was doing all the workouts with the athletes and stuff. I was, and I was, I was road bike racing in the summer when I wasn't coaching and going to school. And so I was still in really good shape. So I would, um, you know, I, w I was racing uh, with the factory team, the Subaru factory team, if you remember that. So I was racing for the factory team and coaching down there. And I was still having pretty good results just off of old fitness, um, probably off of not being able to do as much as I would have tried to be doing if I was a full-time athlete. So the workouts I was doing were just those workouts <laughs> and not, you know, more. So I'm down there, I'm coaching. Throughout my career as an athlete, especially in the latter part of my career, I was running clinics. Um, quite often in even camps and stuff mostly for master skiers but anyway I'm, I'm, I gotta go way back because honestly my whole life I've been a I've been a student of the sport 
Back then, the word nerd it didn't have the same kind of connotations as it does now. Like now, it has these positive connotations. It it, it means somebody that's really into something that is a is a is a student and a passionate person about a specific topic. So I don't use the word nerd because when I grew up, that was not what it meant. You know what I'm saying? But that's what I was. It was a ski nerd, and I watched VCR videos of ski because you couldn't see I, there was no internet you couldn't watch these things so I would watch I would get a hold of these tapes and I would watch them you can't believe how much I'd watch over and over and I'd study the technique and I put it on slow-mo and I'd go over this stuff again and again and again and I would go into my living room and I would imitate what I saw and I would go into my backyard and imitate where did you get the what were the videos of and and uh who in particular might you be imitating? Well, this was back when Sweden was super dominant. So, so my heroes back then were Gundesvan and Torgny Mogren. So those were the those were the guys that I would really watch. Only later would I come around to like appreciate the style of like Marilio Dzolt and those guys. I I kind of wrote those guys off as a you know I I didn't take into consideration the possibility that their technique could actually also be contributing to their success. There's a lot of things that contributed to those guys' success, but uh, rather than just like raw VO2, whatever. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when people look now, oh, oh man. I mean, so this is going to come into what I believe. When you look at who wins a ski race, you may see what you see may or may not be contributing to what makes them win a ski race. Then again, it may. So you may see a technique that you consider ugly. And you may write that off and say, oh, they've got a huge VO2 max because what they're demonstrating technically doesn't match with what you think makes somebody ski fast. But you've got to be open to that too. Who might you look at and say, oh, that's a person that folks might say the technique's not necessarily sound. Oh, yeah, and, and jump to the VO2 max type piece. You know, I, I'm not as much a, a viewer as I once was. Not at all, no. Okay. I don't watch, I cheer for, I cheer for my friends who are ski racing. I cheer for the USA. Honestly, I can't help it. I don't want to be a nationalistic guy, but I cheer for the USA. I really do. And I have friends that coach for other countries, and so I hope they're doing great, and I hope their lives are awesome, and I hope that we are winning those ski races. But in my life, Who's winning those ski races? It's like, I'm super glad when somebody I know has a great race and they're psyched with it. That's about it. Okay, so, so yeah, another digression, but we'll turn the metaphorical boat back on track to describe how Vordenberg ended up with a coaching position with the US. Let's backtrack to this clip. It's like one of those, uh, what are those little boats that you pedal? I mean, those guys were in there pedaling that thing and turning it around because it wasn't going anywhere. Now here's the redirection. Paddle, okay. So, Grover. <laughs> Chris Grover. So, right, Chris so, Grover? This, I have to say, like, people who know me are going to be like, wow, I can't believe he's trying to actually, he is shepherding the interview. No. So The sheep shall roam. So Grover's yeah. in the paddle boat, turning the paddle boat around. Yeah. yeah. Okay? Yeah. You're in New Mexico. Yeah. At what point do you get a phone call 
I don't even know if email was viable back then. It was viable, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, email, phone call, whatever you got. Yeah. Um, someone yeah. contacts you from yeah, USSA. So, um, after graduating from the University of New Mexico, let me throw one more detail in there for the for the kid who needs to hear this. I started college in 1992 at Northern Michigan University, NMU. I graduated from college from UNM, University of New Mexico, in 2000. So it was an eight-year voyage. But within that eight years, you know, I went to a couple Olympics. I lived in I lived in Sweden for the second time. Uh, you know, I did a lot of other stuff. Well, well. Let me just ask this. When did you become the head coach of the U.S. Ski Team? All right. So you're trying to shepherd us. I am trying to shepherd you, but I kind of, I have, there's a little mini agenda maybe. Okay, that's fine. So um, I, I don't know exactly how Tron Neistad was hired as the head coach. That, that was, but that happened in 2002 after the 2002 Olympics. The 2002 Olympics were a really great success, I think, for the U.S., we had a grit. We had an advantage, being a home course, but we also just had awesome skiers. Guys like John Bauer, um, Chris Freeman, um, my wife Barb Jones. If I can plug that, Keegan Randall. I think she was 18 years old, and she was Barb's uh, roommate. I think she was her roommate at the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. They were working on dance moves, a lot of dance moves. So. There's a great Olympics. After the 2002 Olympics, they hired Trond. And Chris was still the development coach, I think. That's Chris Grover, not Chris Freeman. Grover. Yeah, Chris Grover. We can, From here forward, to be referred to as Grover. Yes. He, um, yeah, so he was still the development coach, and I was hired as an assistant coach. That was 2002. When did you get the bump up to the head coach? 2000, after the 2006 Olympics, Tron decided he was going to move on to do other things. And Luke and I talked, and he asked me if I wanted to be the head coach. Also coaching with us at that time was Vidar Lufschus, who I consider a good friend and who I also have a tremendous amount of respect for. He is an amazing dude and, uh, yeah, a, a, a great coach. So I think a lot of people... Who maybe don't know necessarily because Chris has been the the front guy for a while now, um, and you were the precursor to Chris in terms of the head coach. Yeah. So, what are some attributes do you think that you had that Luke was like? Yeah, he's the next guy to kind of to beat this to shepherd us into. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I mean, I think the number one thing. Um, that Luke could see I mean I don't know you gotta ask Luke but this is what I would this is what I would have told Luke were my strengths number one I know the sport I've been a student of the sport I know the sport I know how to wax skis to win a World Cup World Championships or Olympics I can wax the skis to win but I also know and I can coach I can coach the technique and I can coach the physical training but then I, ha I also had a, a real vision for what I wanted to do with U.S. skiing so, and, a, and a passion to try to make that happen. Well, what was the vision? Well, um, man, we are going back, so let me think. Number one, everything we did, it had to fall into line with um, fitness. 
So we would sit around and we would wonder, and right, this is the sim most simple solution of all time. We'd sit around and we'd think, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? The number one thing we had to do, if we want to win a sport at a sport that is won by the people who are the fittest people in the world, then we have to be the fittest people in the world. So whatever we do, that's got to be the number one, that's our number one goal. If everything else disappears and falls away, that's what we're going to do. Whatever money, time, expertise we have, it's going towards that. Number two is partnership. So we had to get everybody on board and we had to get everybody working together. I mean, a country full of people all, uh, you know, charging towards this, towards this goal that we can actually win. College coaches, high school, um, youth coaches, and the athletes. The third one is continuity. Whatever we started, we had to make sure that we could continue the, the successful parts of that. So this was a, a big part of this was just getting the U.S. ski team, the greater U.S. skiing, to support cross-country skiing. So, you know, it's still the case. I don't even know what the, the, uh, what's going on with that now nowadays, but it was the case that, you know, cross-country skiing. When I started, I think the entire budget was under $500,000, you know, for the entire budget. I'm talking about the staples that you staple stuff together with, my salary, Tron's salary, every vial of Sarah F, every plane ticket, $500,000. So, so we actually, uh, Vidar, Tron, and I, we, we told Bill Merrill, we're all done. We're quitting. We need... This is what we need if we're going to win. If you want to even mess around with this, this is what we need. And he gave it to us. So How much was that? It, we were, it was a million or, or maybe almost a million, something like that. And so we took kind of this, this uh, development idea that Minson and Grover had, and we expanded on that. <laughs> and uh, one of the first things we did was, hire a, was uh, make sure that our waxers, which were, at the time was Chris Hall, and then we hired a Norwegian guy, Ulla Birgit was his name. And we hired those guys and we, we wanted to make sure that they were well taken care of and had, the, had what they needed. That, that's one of the big, I, I don't know how well it's told, but that's one of the big parts of what took U.S. skiing to the next level was the development of the waxing program. We went from having way too many wax failures to very rarely is there a major wax failure. There are, of course. And there's more for us than there is for Norway. Those, when those guys have a wax failure, you hear, I mean, it's like news, you know, it's on the news. I mean, our entire budget now is probably still way smaller than their wax budget. Do you need a, how are you doing, by the way? Let's get another. Let's finish this thought and then go get another. I, okay, again, you can't sit down with Luke. And I'm not Luke, but this may be what's going through Luke's So mind. am I including this? Is this... If you want to, okay. yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to say something that I don't want you to include, at least for another half hour. <laughs> so no, I'm uh, not going to have one of those. Not one. No, I'm not going to have the nine percent French connection. All right. No. I'll be. I'll hold the microphone yeah. for the next section. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, this is part genius and part just doing what you have to do. Um, by not funding the U.S. ski team, you see what the community is willing to do. And the community has stepped up all across the board. NNF, 
done an amazing job. Every single club, um, team, person out there has come in underneath these goals. And, you know, it's not, it's allowed the ski team. You know, on the one hand, it's amazing that everyone's done this. On the other hand, you know, the ski team should be the leader and they should be leading with a really strong program. So, they, uh, so they've foisted this effort upon everybody and everyone took it up and ran with it and they, they've done an amazing thing. So, do you, yeah, okay, you're empty. that make sense? Yeah, it made sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like by institutionalizing a little bit of austerity, yeah. you see how much the, the community is willing to kind of pick up the slack, which I, is not a bad concept. Perfect. It's, yeah, perfectly put. And later on, if I get the chance, I want to bring that into a different topic. So we'll, <laughs> let's get there later. Okay, so we'll call. Is it? It's like halftime. This is not halftime. This is not halftime. <laughs> in the next episode, we bike over to another beverage venue. I'm in the bike lane. You, you back there? Right behind you. All right. Tucked in your draft. Okay. Not a lot of draft back here. Look at this. There's, you can't pedal 12 pedal steps without hitting a brewery in this town. No, you can't. And you'll hear more about this. I don't know what's going on. It sort of paints an interesting picture. Oh yeah, there's a show here. Is there a show tonight? Do you know what's going on? Modest Yahoo. No. Wait, who's playing? Are you shitting me? Wait, who are you? Modest Yahoo. Who are you? Oh, I'm Zach. From Bend? Ish. Bendish. Where do you live, Zach? Uh, in Bend. I'm here from Maryland originally. Okay, welcome. What's your name? Tucker. What is this thing? It's a microphone. I know it looks kind of beastly. It's got like a, it's just a wind block because it's kind of windy out. Um, who's playing tonight? Modest Yahoo. Fill me in. I'm a little old. So I, I'm, I'm also not so super versed. Like he's, he's like, I believe it's like Jewish themed. He's, you know. He's it, only from here. Yeah, he, well, he's, I think he lived here for a while, but uh, it's like. I don't know Mediterranean music. You might have it's, more insight. I mean, he's he's a he's a he's a major reggae star, man. Dude, look, look at the venue here. It's kind of I can't. We need to hang this shit up and go to the show. Thanks for listening to episode one of the Pete Vordenberg Experience from Nordic Nation. We'll have episode two drop for you on iTunes shortly. Thanks.